Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen's a little bit, a little bit ill today. So a little under the weather. If her voice gets a little bit scratchy, you'll know why. Yes. And Kristen, I, I know you're sick, but I've got something of a personal question for you. All right. Do you enjoy banting? Uh, it's not a dirty question, I swear. No, I know. I know what you're talking about. And I got to say no. I like food too much. Yes. Banting does have to do with food. Yes. Despite being sick, you read the articles we're going to discuss today. Yes. Good job. <laughs> Let's talk about William Banting. Uh, man, maybe m- few people have heard of today, but he is, he was the household name Banting, back in the mid 19th century. Yeah. Banting had a great story. He was a coffin maker, a very, a very portly fellow. Quite large. He could not tie his shoes. <laughs> he couldn't tie his shoes because he couldn't, couldn't even reach him over his portly belly. And uh Banting decided that he wanted to drop some pounds. He tried everything. Yeah. But finally he found one guy who was like, why don't you cut out your saccharine matter? Yeah. By which they basically meant carbs, bread, butter, milk, sugar, beer, and potatoes. So Banting went on a very primitive form of the Atkins diet, mm-hmm. I guess. And he dropped 156 pounds, the 150. Jared of his day. Amazing. And we are not the only people who thought it was amazing. He was pretty impressed with himself, too, since he tried everything else. And he wrote a book about it, a little pamphlet um, called The Letter on Corpulence, Addressed to the Public. They just don't title dieting books the way they used to. I know. But um, because it was such a, you know, bestseller, people wanted to drop their portly bellies, too. Um, banting became the household word for dieting, according to an article we found on Salon.com. And there were all sorts of fad diets in Banting's day. There was uh, the Graham diet invented uh, by Sylvester Graham, who invented the Graham cracker. Mm-hmm. And this one's my favorite, uh, Horace Fletcher's Fletcherism, who was known as the great masticator because he had a theory that all food and even milk should be chewed at least 32 times. I really wish the article had explained how you chew milk. Do you have any idea how you do that? Maybe you, you swish more than chew. All right. I mean, I don't think that can be good for your teeth. I don't know. But that's beside the point. Everyone else of the day loved it. People like Upton Sinclair, Henry James, John D. Rockefeller, they all went to these Fletcher clubs where you just sit around and chew food. Yeah, very, very slowly. Just chew. And we think this sounds hilarious, but you've got to wonder, um, people a hundred years from now will be looking back at us and saying, wow, all they did was eat meat and eggs. How did they think that that was going to work? Yeah. Cabbage diets, grapefruit diets, South Beach diets, liquid diets. There are all sorts of fad diets going on, and we want to talk about diets. You know, we've talked in the past about colon cleansing. We've talked about um, BMI and weight control. So naturally, the next thing to come to is whether what you put in your belly or lack thereof, if that makes any difference. What does dieting, deciding work? And then another question I have about this, Kristen. Yes. Is there a link between dieting and aging? Well, Molly, I think the reason why you asked this question is because of an article that you wrote for HowStuffWorks.com on calorie restriction and anti-aging. Because there have been this series of studies that have shown that reducing your calorie intake by around 30% 
can possibly lead to longer lifespan. Yeah, and we're not talking calorie restriction in terms of you're going to cut out the chocolate cake or the cupcakes or the cookies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are going to go down to 1,400 calories a day, and um, but still maintaining all your necessary nutrients. And this is, again, just not like a regular calorie-restricted diet. It's, it's draconian. It's like we're going to eat carrots and salmon, and that's it. Should I go over um, a sample of a uh, calorie-restricted diet day menu. Courtesy of the New York Times. In 2003. For breakfast, you might have a mega muffin, which is uh, 30 ingredients, including raw wheat germ, rice bran, brewer's yeast, carrots, strawberries, and psyllium husk. The main ingredient in Metamucil? Yes. Yeah. So that's going to really get things going in the morning, (laughs) this mega muffin. And for lunch, you might have a protein bar, Or a roast beef sandwich, hold the bread. But doesn't that just sound like roast beef? Yes. Okay. Maybe they should just call it just just that roast beef. (laughs) I think if you're on this diet, you might start to have hallucinations because you're so (laughs) calorie-deprived that you might just call it a roast beef sandwich. And then for dinner, we're going to cap things off with some broccoli, zucchini, and canned pink salmon for a total of 300 calories, followed by a decadent dessert. A fruit salad topped with whey protein. Now, why would you... I mean, I'm all for eating healthy, but that just doesn't do it for me. seems like life's too short to, to, you know, just eat 300 calories and canned salmon every day and mega muffins. Well, and especially because when I was researching this article, you read the articles about this phenomenon. And, I mean, these people have to invest in scales and notebooks and they weigh their food and it's... It's like a full-time job. If I'm hungry, I'm more likely just to, you know, open a bag of pretzels than to actually want to cook something. So if I'm really hungry, I'm not going to want to sit and weigh my salmon on a scale. But you know what, Molly? Um, you might be cutting your life shorter than necessary by opening that bag of pretzels. <laughs> That's true, and for so many reasons. But um, the main thing is all these studies that we're talking about, they've been studying calorie restriction in mainly flies and mice because they've got pretty short lifespans. It's easy to, it's easy to track them. Starting in 1935, when a nutritionist at Cornell found that if you eat 30% fewer calories, you'll have a 40% increase in lifespan. Wow. So that would make a human live to the age of 160. Now, I mean, that's a pretty decent trade-off. Eat a lifetime of Mega Muffins and then be 160, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's 60 what years of extra years of Mega Muffins. That's what you've got away, but, um, huh, way. Sorry, Kristen, I just amuse myself sometimes. Sorry, Mom. That wasn't purposeful. <laughs> um, but anyway, there are no studies of how calorie restriction works in humans because unlike mice and fruit flies, we already have fairly long lifespans. Yeah. Uh, but we do have some observational mm-hmm. material from Okinawa, Japan. Um, it's kind of, it's a little depressing, this, uh, this research, but basically after World War One and Two, when, uh, food was in short supply, there were fewer people in, um, on Okinawa who were dying from age-related diseases such as coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, and cancer. So basically they were going on a forced calorie restriction diet. And in general, um, Japan also has a, a very long-lived population, mm-hmm. much longer than folks here in the U.S. So, you know, that's that's maybe one 
one human study? Well, I sort of think that maybe if you force yourself into survival mode, the way these people might have been in survival mode after a war where there was no food, then somehow evolutionary-wise, your body kickstarts itself and says, we've got to live through this starvation. So that's sort of the point of calorie restriction is almost fooling your body into thinking, hey, there's no food, but to ensure that we've got, you know, offspring, we should we should continue to live. But I think we got to point out, too, though, that these calorie restriction studies are not the same across the board for uh, for these animals, going back to the animals, because it doesn't work for everybody. For instance, it extends the life in fruit flies, but not house flies. It's going to benefit fat mice, but not already lean mice. And also, it's going to um, make lab rats live longer, but not those found in the wild. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns. And there's, you know, while living longer to some extent would be a nice side effect, there are some other side effects of this. Um, that include loss of libido, cessation of menstrual periods, loss of memory and muscle mass, and dizziness. So that's fun. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, like going back to this stuff in Japan, maybe they are, it's not just that they're on a calorie-restricted diet, but the quality of the food that they're eating is a lot better. It's a healthier balance, and maybe they're, you know, living healthier lifestyles in general, getting a bit more exercise and all of that. And I think that's the model for all healthy lifestyles, Kristen. You know, you eat less, you move more, and that's how you kind of make a, a lifestyle change sustainable. These people who are adopting this calorie restriction diet are, are sort of taking it to the extreme and not necessarily a healthy extreme. Sure. Cutting, I think we could say that cutting 30% of your daily calorie intake is, is an extreme form of dieting. And speaking of extreme, Dieting, one uh, side effect that we might not think about is how that kind of rapid weight loss might affect your physical appearance Mm -hmm. and not for the good. We might, you know, go down a dress size, but according to a fairly recent study from Plastic and Reconstructive Journal, my favorite journal, (laughs) yes, um, women, and these were women, I think over 40 who lost as little as 10 pounds um, looked four years older because mm-hmm. of the weight loss. Right. While the ones who didn't lose the weight had these plump cheeks and soft features that made them look younger than their actual age. Mm-hmm. And this comes from uh, a, a study of body mass index among 200 pairs of identical female twins over over the course of two years. And while I didn't look at the same thing in men, I think that um, it does make an interesting point about how uh, if you if you lose that important kind of fat in, around your face that can can make you look older, a little haggard. <laughs> so you might live forever, but you'll look kind of an old lady while you do it. So what's the solution, Kristen? I mean, these are extreme diets. We're basically saying fad diets are really out there and, and probably don't work, right? I mean, no one's going around masticating things 32 times today. Well, I mean, you aren't. I mean, you're not eating lunch with me. <laughs> I still haven't figured out that milk takes thing. Two hours. Uh, well, Molly, the thing is, we might just be fighting an uphill battle with all this dieting stuff. Tell me more. Well, um, according to the Eating Disorders Foundation of Victoria, 95%, Molly, 95% of people who go on weight loss diets. A fad in, diet, probably. Yeah, some kind of fad diet, a, a diet intended to make them lose weight. Um, they're going to gain back everything they've lost and more within two years. 95%. Wow. Yeah. So basically, if you're going on a diet purely to lose weight, mm-hmm. the second you abandon that diet, it all comes back. Sure. 
which is why we're going to basically, are we going to take a stance to say down with diets? Well, I think that this is a good point to, to maybe propose that we change our concept of what a diet should be when we look at a, a going on a diet, you okay. know? If I'm going to go eat grapefruit for two weeks, obviously I'm not going to sustain that, but I'm going to drop, mm-hmm. you know, a few pounds, but it's going to rebound once I finally get sick of grapefruit and start eating normally again. But maybe instead of going on these fad diets, I should look at my diet, okay, mm-hmm. as a whole and see like your what, eating habits. My eating habits, exactly. What I'm eating, when, and what kind of healthy, sustainable adjustments I could be making. Yeah. Like, you know that, I mean, people generally know as a rule that they should not eat fried chicken, let's say. Yeah. Even though it's delicious. So delicious. Um, and so going on a grapefruit diet to counteract the years you spent eating fried chicken. Yeah, good idea. Right. So if you make the overall change, what you're telling me is if I limit my intake of fried chicken while still upping my quantities of healthy foods. Yeah. Such as carrots. Maybe trade in the fried chicken, Molly, for the char grill. Char grilled chicken is delicious. <laughs> See? Sorry to all you vegetarians. I, I really like right all now. forms of chicken. And I think one interesting concept, Molly, we should also bring up is this idea of the set point theory that maintains that our weight is genetically determined. Mm-hmm. That for some people, no matter how hard they try to gain or to lose weight, it's just not going to happen because it's just not in their genes. And, um, uh, even more specifically, uh, whenever we try to uh, gain or lose weight within four to six pounds or two to three kilograms of our uh, kind of set weight, our body's going to go into survival mode and it's going to slow our metabolism to save energy. And then our cravings for high calorie foods are going to skyrocket, thus causing the the diet rebound. And as proof of that, Kristen, let's let's take a, a brief trip to Scandinavia. Um, there was one study, uh, I'm not sure the year, but it was um, profiled in a book called Rethinking Thin by Gina Colata, where she goes over sort of all these weight loss studies over the years to, to more or less point out how ridiculous they are. Um, but there was this group of 540 adopted children in Denmark um, who were found to be, with very few exceptions, as fat or thin as their biological parents, no matter what they were fed or how much they exercised. Similarly, there was another study of Swedish twins. Like I said, we're going to cover the whole, almost the whole realm of Scandinavia. <laughs> um, 70% of body weight in these Swedish twins was genetic, so that it's more likely that you're inheriting your weight from your parents than you're inheriting much else, including um, likelihood of getting mental illness, cancer, But that sounds sort of depressing to think about, Kristen. I mean, for all of us who are out there trying to make changes in our diet to exercise more, is all hope lost? I mean, I don't think so. I think that, like you said, making those daily changes in our diets, we're eating foods that make us feel good Mm -hmm. in the long run, as opposed to foods with icing that probably only make us feel good in the short run. That's sort of more a a long-term benefit than weight loss is, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and... and Think about integrating certain lifestyle changes, you know, that are often tossed out, you know, as common tips such as, you know, taking the stairs or parking farther away or, you know, trying to walk more. Just approaching it from, uh, I guess, a holistic perspective rather than just saying, you know what, like, I've got to lose 10 pounds and I'm just going to eat grapefruit and Special K 
and that's it and mm-hmm. go to the extreme. So weight loss is possible, but not with a fad diet. Long well, term. Long, long term. term. Yeah, exactly. Just if you want sustainable results, you have to work at it. it. Takes it takes time. Okay. It takes dedication. So no fad diets. Santi yeah. frowns on them. Yeah, I mean, come on. Life is too short for fad diets, people. That's what my mom always told me. <laughs> so if you guys have any thoughts on dieting and aging, let us know what they are at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And speaking of our email address, address, Kristen, I've got some people who have written into it in the past. All right. Let's hear an email from Lindsay who wrote us about uh, the baseball podcast. Okay. She wrote, I have to say I'm a little disappointed with your portrayal of softball. As a girl who spent her entire youth on a softball diamond, I was a little confused when you mentioned men playing the sport because it has a soft ball so they wouldn't get us hurt with the increasing cost of medical insurance in the 1930s. I don't know if either of you have ever played softball, but believe me, when you get hit with a 12-inch softball at 60 miles per hour from 30 feet away, there's nothing soft about it. When I was still playing, a fellow player ripped off a girl's earlobe just because the girl was not fast enough to catch the ball that was hit right back at her. I don't think that she thought the ball was soft. As well, just because the bases are closer, the field is smaller, and a pitch underhand does not mean that it is any less challenging. There's no difference in reaction time when hitting a 90 miles per hour baseball from 90 feet and hitting a 60 mile per hour softball from 30 feet. As well as I have to completely disagree when you compare female softball players with cheerleaders and the fact that they feel the need to keep their femininity while playing their sport. As a small girl, I was discriminated in the sport for not being as big and burly as other girls. The game has become much more butch and closer to baseball with stronger players that hit home runs. The sport, which used to be more interesting than baseball because there's far more action, but now manager coach seems to be like baseball teams, encouraging home runs instead of the short game of bunting, drag hitting, which in general meant a lot more action. I do agree that baseball and softball are different sports, but I'm sure glad that us females get the better of the two. Softball. All right. Uh, and I've got an email here from Christina. And she wants us to get rid of marriage. You proposed that in a podcast. (laughs) I did propose it. Uh, Propose. (laughs) (laughs) She said, I totally agree. I think Kristen said it. We should just get rid of marriage completely. People could still live together and have kids. They just wouldn't be married. There would still be religious marriages, if you believe in that, but it wouldn't be legal. There'd be no joint bank accounts. Taxes would be filed separately. And there'd be no expensive and traumatic divorces. I think marriage is just an unnecessary and expensive complication. My mom quite often reminds me that I'm only 16 and will probably change my mind when I meet the man of my dreams. I tell her that I'm not a romantic and don't dream about a mysterious man that will show up in my life at some unspecified time in the future. Then she says that she should record the things I will say now and play them at my wedding. I tell her again I'm not getting married, but she's still fully convinced I will fall in love and get married. Maybe I'm screwed up in the head or my mom forgot to teach me something, or I just think independently. Whatever it is, I don't want to be anyone's wife. Well, thank you, Christina, for writing in. Yeah. And as always, if you would like to write in, again, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And during the week, if you'd like to head over to our blog, it's called How To Stuff. And if you would like to read Molly's article on dieting and aging, you should also head over to howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 
brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?